Ahoy authors! You're listening to the Writership Podcast, a show focused on helping indie authors master self-editing skills. So come aboard and get ready to find the treasure in your manuscript with hosts Leslie Watts and Alyssa Archer. Welcome to episode 51 of the Writership Podcast. I'm Leslie Watts. And I'm Alyssa Archer. With the Writership Podcast, we want to help you edit your way into a great book. If you'd like to find out more about Writership, you can find us on the web at writership.org. The Writership Podcast is brought to you by the Author Marketing Institute as part of the AMI Podcast Network. You can learn more about how AMI is helping authors by visiting www.authormarketinginstitute.com. If you go there today, you can gain free access to their video course entitled Selling Your First 100 Copies. That's authormarketinginstitute.com. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Alyssa. (laughs) So I've been thinking lately about um, how awesome my critique group is and how helpful my critique groups over the decades have been in helping me hone my own writing. And so I just wanted to um, take a few minutes to encourage our listeners, if if you're not participating currently in a critique group, seek one out or create one. Meetup.com is a great place to um, reach out to other writers or, you know, even Facebook. And uh, you can do it virtually. You can do it. I love meeting other writers in person. It's a reprieve for me. And um, the experience of critiquing other people's work really helps you see and identify these things that we're talking about all the time without beating yourself up (laughs) along the way. Um, So I just uh, seek seek out a critique group, find one that you trust, try them out, Um, you know, go to, go to a meeting and try it on for size and see if the personality fits, see if the writing fits, see if the advice is good and see if you'll learn and be able to contribute and jump in. Yeah. Yeah, I think it can be a great experience. Um, And my only caution would be, you know, to underline what you said, like to make sure that the advice feels right, and perhaps check it out. Sometimes in a critique group, you'll have some, you know, people who have, you know, different levels of experience. Um, So you want to, you know, make sure that you're getting good advice and that you're the people are a good fit for you. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a great way to, um, to get, to give feedback and thereby learn and to keep learning and developing your craft. Absolutely. And the group that I'm in now, we're small, but we're tight knit. There's three of us. And, um, so we've been together for probably three years now. And I've just started, um, submitting my own, first chapters to a book that is much early, a much earlier draft than I would normally submit, but I trust them that much and I value their feedback that much. And it's jolted me back into the writing with a uh, ferocity. So yay. Yay for critique groups. <laughs> Excellent. Um, speaking of critiques, uh, yes. <laughs> I, I wanted to, um, 
we had a, a new review on iTunes that I was excited about. And um, we're so, so grateful for the reviews. And, um, and we're at 19 now. And I thought I would issue a challenge today that um, we'd like to get to 25 uh, by the next week. And so if you are enjoying the podcast and getting something out of it, we would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. It really, it means a lot to us and it helps other people find us. So if you find this helpful, um, we would love it for you to help us out. Yes, please. Yes. All right, Leslie, shall we get started? Yes, let's do Okay, today uh, we have a quote of the week from Sean Coyne, who is the author of The Story Grid, What Good Editors Know. Scenes are battles built on conflict. Stories are wars that take values to the end of the line, or at the very least, approach the end of the line. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm gonna own that i'm a i'm a huge sean coin and story grid fan uh so you should know that up front um but i yeah so i love what he says you know that's this idea that you know it's all conflict so if you have if you have a scene where there's no conflict now that doesn't mean it has to be a literal battle or a literal you know like people taking up arms and fighting but conflict is the stuff that drives the story and so it's really important to have um to include that and and have a plenty of it in your scenes and and across the whole story Yes, and things must be at stake. And I think it's difficult for new authors sometimes to inflict devastating conflict upon their beloved characters. It 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 feels dangerous. And and small conflict feels bigger than it is. Don't be afraid to lay it on. Yeah, yeah. It's I almost want to encourage people to write a uh, write a scene where you're like doing a George R R Martin where you just like you know, kill off a beloved character or something. Not that that would necessarily make it into the into your final version, but just really go for it and make life hard for your characters. Because I mean, we want our life to be easy, <laughs> most of us. Um, but but for our characters, they really when when you read a story, you, if everything works out, um, that's not uh, it's not very satisfying for the reader. And so you really want to make it make life just miserable for your for your characters yeah i mean you want it to work out you just don't want it to work out easily right right all right excellent i'm gonna get a little quick drink here before we launch into today's submission uh we are looking at the humanarium today by chris tick this is science fiction. Word count is about 120,000, and it is as of yet unpublished. We are looking at the prologue. And thank you, Chris, for submitting this today. The Humanarium. Wind whipped against Harl's face as he raced across the world towards the barrier. 
If he could make it in time, he might be able to save the boys. Troy raced at his side, staying close and glancing back at the town. Where are they? Harl asked. Edge of the forest, Troy stumbled as he spoke, but Harl grabbed him and they ran on. How did you find out? Troy pounded on for a few more steps, holding his side. Old Toby let it slip, Troy said, gasping for breath between words. No one's supposed to know. Ahead of them, smooth and unmarked, a vast black wall spread across the horizon and ascended to the top of the world. It marked the edge of the world and the limit of the race. Harl lowered his eyes to where the forest met the pitch black barrier. There was still some way to go until they reached it. He glanced back over his shoulder towards the town, then dived forward and dragged Troy to the ground. Guards were streaming out along the road after them. Oh, gods, Troy whispered. We can get to them in time, Harl said. Troy looked at him as though he was mad. They scrambled up into a crouch and ran along, trying to keep to the hollows and the rolling grassland before they reached the dark mass of trees merging into fields. The two boys were hacking into the soil at the base of the barrier when Harl and Troy found them. Both their black-haired heads popped up over the edge of the hole at the sound of the two men racing towards them. Childish fear marked their muddy faces. They stopped digging and scrambled up out of the hole at the base of the wall, dragging a pair of shovels with them as they made a break for the nearest trees. Harl was on top of them before either could make an escape. What do you think you're doing, Harl demanded, grabbing the nearest boy by the arm and dragging him across the clearing towards the trees. Digging, mister, the boy said as though tunneling under the barrier was a common occurrence. You daft buggers, he said, looking at their mud-streak faces. Troy snatched the oversized shovels from their hands and tossed them into the hole. What were you thinking, he hissed. Please, mister, the boy pleaded. We don't want trouble. It's not us you want to worry about, Luke, Harl said as they reached the first tree. But father's tools, Luke said. It's too late. The elders know you're here. Just run, run. The four of them raced deeper into the woods, heads down and sticking close to the barrier before crouching down in a thicket to look back. They could see the guards at the hole inspecting the shovels and looking around for any sign of the diggers. The man leading them was wrapped in a white robe that stood out among the armor-clad guards. It flickered in the breeze, reflecting ornate gold patterns, marking the man as an elderman. Rufus, Harl said, recognizing the man. Rufus leant over the hole. Find them, he screamed, snatching up a shovel. Search the woods. They will be lifted for such heresy. Move, Troy said as the guards spread out into the forest. Take the long route, Harl said knowing they would be easy to spot cutting across to town and hoping the cover from the brush would hide them until they could get back to the boys' parents. If they got back, then no one could prove they had been trying to tunnel out. 
As soon as he heard the voices, Harl knew they were too late. He had managed to get the boys back to their house, but Rufus and the guards had beaten them, beaten them to it. Rufus was flanked by four guards, standing with their backs to the garden, shouting at a confused man. The boy's father spotted Harl holding the children back from the tree line at the end of the garden while Rufus argued his point. The tools have your initials on them, Rufus said, brandishing a shovel at the man. And do you expect me to believe they were stolen this morning? Someone must be guilty, Rufus went on, and the evidence points at someone from this house. The father's eyes flickered from Rufus to the boy's. And what of it, he said, stepping forward to stand over the shorter elderman. Rufus was shaking with barely checked rage. Where are your children? he asked. They were overheard, plotting to break into the realm of the gods. Blasphemy, pure and simple. Harl saw the father look at him before standing straighter, staring the elderman down. It was not my boys, Rufus, he said. I dared the wrath of the gods. I have no wish to live in this prison any longer. Blasphemy, Rufus said. Take him. Two of the guards grabbed an arm each, and Harl watched helpless as the man was marched towards the quarries. Both boys made a start towards their father, but he kept a hand on Luke's shoulder while Troy did the same with the other. There's nothing you can do. Harl said, feeling sorry for the boys. He will serve his time and be back soon enough. Harl thought it best to at least let them follow their silent father, and he guided them gently behind. Rufus had turned to see the four of them following, and a nasty smile passed his lips before he turned back. Bastard, Harl said, looking to Troy. He knows it was the boys. As long as someone is punished, he doesn't care, Troy said. He can't prove these two were there, and he doesn't need to if the old man gave a confession. He's probably hoping to curry favor with the older elderman. They took the main road leading through the town to the elderman's chamber. It seemed to Harl that Rufus had deliberately taken the path where the most eyes would see them. A large domed structure, unique in appearance, rose above the tiled half-timber buildings that made up most of the town center. <clears throat> Dark-haired men and women stopped to watch them pass. The spectacle of one of the few hundred inhabitants being escorted by guards was unusual. Hey, one man said, stepping out of a butcher shop. What's Earl done? Keep your questions to yourself, Pinkleton, Rufus said. He's under arrest for heresy. What about his little ones? A woman asked from a doorway. <clears throat> Not my concern, Rufus said, looking back at Harl, Troy, and the boys. Come here, boys, the woman said, scowling at Rufus. You're going to be staying with me for a while. Go on, Harl said, watching the boys go to woman. He decided he would follow the group until they got inside the council chambers. Someone screamed, and every person in the street near a doorway disappeared. The guards scattered, leaving the prisoner and Rufus standing in the center of a deserted road. Haro looked up and saw the hand reaching down. It was the size of a house. 
its four fingers outstretched as it descended down between the buildings, smashing into a roof and sending tiles falling to the cobbles. Rufus fell to the floor, wailing, hands raised above his head as if to ward off the limb. The fingers spread above the boy's father and shut, snapping him inside before the giant hand drew back. Harl watched it leave the land, moving upwards and out through a hinged opening near the back of the world. And that is the end of our submission. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, I, this was, I really enjoyed this. And, um, and one thing I want to say before we, before we dive into the discussion um, is that um, there's an interest, there's a really interesting premise that's behind uh, this prologue. And, um, and Chris, the author, recommended that one of us read the read his synopsis and one of us not. So I've read it, so I kind of know um, I know the I know more than Alyssa does as we're discussing <laughs> this, and I, I I'll reveal it at the end, which will be kind of exciting. Um, so um, yes, I think I'm, Leslie has a greater tolerance for spoilers than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. You know, it's funny is that my mom, um, when I was a kid, she would, when she read thing, a book, she would read the last chapter to make sure everything worked out all right, because she had no tolerance for things not working out a certain way, I guess. Um, but uh, I don't go that far, but I did enjoy finding out um, what, uh, what our author uh, is, is up to here. So Interesting, interesting. Yes. I love it. Okay, so, um, so I wanted to um, to look at what makes a scene work, and I think this scene here works in the prologue. Um, and I wanted to use the story grid to kind of demonstrate um, how that is. So, um, this la, 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 la. okay, here I go. To support a scene, um, this. It, and to support the story, a scene really needs um, these five parts, and they're five parts you might recognize from um, from larger story structure. Um, that you need an inciting incident, so something that upsets the life balance of the protagonist or the character in the scene. Um, you need increasing complications, you know, events that both move the story forward and make life more difficult for the protagonist. Um, even if it's a good difficult, it still it, it complicates things. Um, and all of that comes to a crisis question, which is usually the best of two bad choices or two irre irreconcilable goods. And that, that then, that question, the answer to that question is the climax. So it's the moment when the character makes the decision and then there's a resolution. What's the result? What happens as a result of the decision? Okay, and all of this comes from the story grid, um, which I encourage you to check out. Check out that site. Um, there will be a link in the in the show notes. So the other thing that a scene should do is turn. There should be a change in value for better or for worse. For example, a movement toward or, you know, toward life or death, toward love or hate, toward happiness or sadness, depending on what values, what story values um, you have in your story. 
So I broke this scene down in the way that I think it comes out. And reasonable minds can differ on the um, StoryGrid podcast when uh, when Sean Coyne and Tim Grawl talk about a story and they talk about where these things are. They sometimes disagree and and that's okay. Um, But but it still helps the helps you see what the components are in a scene. So here we ha- I think that the inciting incident is, you know, Harl le- has learned that the two boys are in trouble. We don't know the nature of the trouble exactly, but we know that it's bad enough to send him and Troy running after them. Um, the increasing complications are when they encounter them, the guards are after them. And Rufus, later, after they run away, Rufus and his and the guards find the tools and because of the uh, initials on the tools, they know where to find the people who had been digging. Um, and they also knew already um, it, uh, because old Toby had let it slip. <laughs> um so Harl tries to get the boys back home before Rufus and the guards get there, but he's not successful. So this leads to a um, the crisis question. We have the be- the best of two bad situations, and should Harl save the boys or their father? Because one of them, you know, like somebody is going to have to pay for the the crime of trying to dig through the barrier, um, dig around or get under or through the barrier. Um, and, and so Arl has to decide whether to hold the boys back or, um, and let the father take the rap for their actions or let the boys be punished. Um, and so the climax where he makes his decision, Harl does hold them back. He keeps them from confessing, which I think we can, um, we can assume was a pretty good choice because in the um, because Rufus seems like the kind of guy who would have punished them all if the boys had come forward, if Harl had allowed, allowed them to go forward. So then the resolution is on the way to the chambers, an enormous hand comes out of the sky and takes the boy's father. Um, and that's a that's really like I said that I didn't see that coming when I read this the first time. It was really an interesting um, an interesting twist, um, which brings me to the change. What is the change? Well, we have we have um, captivity or oppression um, that that moves from you know we move from captivity. The boys are trying to break out. They're trying to you know gain freedom. Um, and then it, it goes to something worse than captivity because their father is being, their father is um, being taken out of the world. So essentially he is getting out of captivity, but it's worse because it's this being done by this great big hand and they don't know what's going to happen. Um, this is a really nice twist on the scene. So, you know, as I said, we can assume the boys were seeking freedom, but then their father being removed. That's not the way that, that's not the, the freedom from captivity that they were hoping for. So this is just a quick run through. Um, and um, there's more, obviously, on the StoryGrid podcast um, and the page. Uh to explore all these different things. Um, but I thought it was an interesting, it was an interesting way to look at what are the basics of what makes a scene work. 
Very nice. Very nice. I would agree with that. I I think this is a really interesting premise. Um, I want to recount my first experience reading it. I felt like it was really underwritten. Like I needed to know more about who Harl was and why he cared about these boys. And there were several mentions of the word race or raced, right? Troy raced at his side. And then um, later on, there's a reference to a race. And I felt myself wondering if they were in a competition. Um, there's so much new here to for the reader to absorb that I kind of wanted the writer to slow down a little and let me absorb some of it. I didn't understand why the boys would be digging. I didn't understand what, yeah, as I mentioned, Harl's relationship to them and why he should care so much about their fate. And I wanted to know that. Um, but those were barely, I mean, kind of, my, this is well written. We learn a lot in a short period of time. We learn that the world is bound by this huge black wall that ex- expands skyward. We learn that there are two classes of people, at least, right? There are these, the servant class or serf class, and then the elite um, religious class that meets out punishment for heresy. And we learn that there's um, political machinations within that elite class um and then yeah that delicious twist if you can work a twist into your book work a twist into your book because they are just so so um delightful to a reader um and if you have a mystery book that doesn't have a twist then shame on you (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) i know it's just so odd to hear you say shame on you But yeah, so that's really um, the the crux of my criticism is that I, I wanted more. I wanted more flavors, more tastes. I wanted to know what things smelled like. I wanted to know, you know, how lumpy the ground was. I, I got a sense of, a little sense of that, but mm-hmm. more and more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I totally get that. Um, and, and I will say I have a lot of, um, I have a lot of inline comments Um in the you know in our critique um and i want to say up front that you know that these are that this is not these are suggestions for tightening things and i didn't want to talk about them on the um podcast because they're things that we've talked about before and um uh i I really wanted to talk about the structure um so there's some things in there that you might want to check out um in the show notes and then um Oh, yeah. And then one other question that I wanted to um, that I wanted to raise is that I'm not sure why we don't know the boys um, or their father's names, except we find out the father's name kind of far in. Um, And so I had a question about that because that felt like it was done deliberately. And so I wanted to I'm just kind of tossing that question out. I don't know the answer to it. Um, I agree with that. I wanted to. I wanted to have some kind of understanding of a relationship earlier uh-huh. and a name would help provide that. And it was odd to run into it when we did with the father's name. Right. Right. And I think that um, it's, you know, something when you're considering whether or not to name people is, you know, one thing to think about is that it makes some of the, it can make some of the construction of your sentences a little easier because if you say, 
the boy's father's eyes or, you know, like that. It, it just, it, it gets a little clunky. So if it's not necessary to leave the name hidden, then I would go ahead and even if, you know, you're just, even if they don't, um, even if they're just minor characters that we never see again after the prologue, it's still kind of, it's still a good idea to give them a little bit of, um, a little bit of flesh on their bones, so to speak. I agree. All right. All right. Is it time for the big reveal? It's time for the big reveal. (laughs) So, so this story is based on a future when the earth has no resources and 10,000 pre-selected humans leave earth on a ship that is built and it has it built with the last resources that are available um, and that can keep people alive until a new and habitable planet is found and that's a hundred thousand years later um, the ship automatically wakes them when they land so the humans um, they land and they find that the world is huge it's enormous um the plants and the animals are really you know are oversized um and so it's home to an alien race of giants who are 200 to 300 meters tall um and they're fairly intelligent bipedal um and um the earth humans they land in a scientist's backyard and the alien discovers them and decides to study them and um he captures them and keeps them in a tank like fish tank you know that's the the humanarium which is such a great name Mm. um and so the tank is regulated to make it uh okay for the humans to live um and he sells them so he's got a sort of pet shop Um, (laughs) okay so this story and they're separated they keep them separated by um races um the alien does in in the tanks so Mm -hmm. everybody in the same in the tank is going to be similar so this um, this story that's the that's all backstory. This story takes place two thousand years later from the perspective of Harl, um, who's you know he's a an average in the tank. Yeah, he's an <laughs> average guy in the tank. Um, and so um, I won't go any further because I you know I don't want to give away more. But I just I really um, loved this this premise and the um the yeah i'm really i'm really into it and i love the twist and i think it's a really interesting story so i'm excited to see um what our author does with this one wow how fun all right well do you have an editorial mission for us? I actually do in the middle of all of this. <laughs> so I want you to play around with the story grid structure. And I, oh, let me get to this. Okay. So I want you to subject your opening scene to the story grid. So look for the inciting incident, the increase in complications, the crisis question, climax, and resolution. And what's the change in value? If you find that something's missing, figure out how you will include it. Um, And if all of the elements are present, then ask yourself how you can tweak them to make your story even better. 
And please let us know how it goes. You can leave a comment at the bottom of the show notes or drop us a line at captainsblog at writership.org. Thanks, Leslie. And remember, the Writership Podcast is brought to you by the good folks at the Author Marketing Institute, which you can find at www.authormarketinginstitute.com. Don't forget to stop by today for access to the video course, Selling Your First 100 Copies. Also, if you're wanting to write a novel and don't know where to begin, we suggest you check out Writership Anchor One Dreamtime. It's a 90-day exploratory journey that helps you consider what decisions to make before you write Chapter One. It's available in ebook form and print on Amazon.com. All right, that is it for us today. We will see you next time on the Writership Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Writership Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and sharing the show with your author friends and communities. And right after you do that, make sure to contact the hosts, Leslie and Alyssa, to help you find the treasure in your manuscript. Head on over to writership.org forward slash podcast to submit your pages.